and welcome back to Vermont Ed Reads, books by, for, and with Vermont educators. Today is a little of all three as we welcome instructional coaches Emily Rinkma and Stan Williams to the show. They're the authors of the Standards-Based Classroom, Make Learning the Goal, and they've been working on implementing and assessing proficiencies at Champlain Valley Union High School in Hinesburg, Vermont. Proficiency-based education is something of a hot topic in Vermont. In 2013, the Vermont Legislature passed Act 77, which required schools around Vermont to implement personal learning plans, flexible pathways, and proficiency-based learning for students in grades 7 through 12 by 2020. That is now. Or at least it was at the time of recording. Anyway, Stan and Emily are old hats at the proficiency game, and their book is a valuable resource for working with educators who are new to proficiencies, especially as they relate to assessment. This is Vermont Ed Reads. Let's chat. Thanks for joining me, Emily and Stan. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Uh, We are um, proficiency-based learning coordinators. That's our current title in the Champlain Valley School District. Um, We have been in a in this role but with many different names for approximately 10 10 years years. i think now Um, we also teach still so we've been teaming together as humanities teachers for 22 years so a long time and we still teach a course together now at the high school so half we we each spend half of our jobs at the high school supporting the continued implementation of standards-based learning and the other half of our jobs are now at the middle schools supporting the implementation there. Do you want to add anything, Stan? Hi, she, uh, she did a pretty nice job. But uh, yes, it's, uh, we've gone uh, and then back at the high school. Um, you know, we've taught from the uh, ninth grade core program to um, kind of started when the 10th grade humanities teams began um, before we, uh, you know, took this halftime role into, uh, into this job and are now in... Uh, teaching a course called Think Tank. Um, so that's been, uh, that's been our fun new challenge. We also, about two years ago, is when we wrote the book uh, for Corwin. Um, and since then, it's been, we've had the opportunity to work with a lot of schools and districts, not only in our state, but around the country, and then most recently, even internationally, working with a few schools. So that's been really amazing to see how different school districts interpret um, these same principles of learning. Yeah, I've, I went to a workshop with some of the teachers I work with um, that you two led uh, on proficiency-based learning or standards-based learning. And um, one of the questions I know you must hear and that I hear all the time is, how long will it take before we get there? And what I'm hearing from you in your role as coaches in this work is that it's not a one and done, that it's an ongoing process, the getting there. Yeah, I think that uh, anytime, if you actually ever think you're there, um, there's probably a misunderstanding because I'm not sure uh, there's ever going to be a be a there. But uh, yeah, and that's one of the, I think that's one of the big things that we've had to grapple with, and that especially uh, adults as educators have to grapple with is the fact that it, it is not a here's the box, open it up, um, take it out, and now you are a standards based uh, teacher. Um, and so I think that's 
often what the, the thought is, give me the program, give me, uh, give me the answer and I'll do it, or give me, uh, give me the sheets and I'll do it, um, which is, is not the case. Uh, I think that also is one of the things that leads to some of the difficulties around is that people will look to change the, the grading and the reporting, but then not, um, not get to the fact that it's the instruction, it's the assessment, it's all the work in the classroom that needs to change as well. And so, uh, so yeah, I think that's, uh, that's the biggest part of our job probably is dealing with that, uh, that other part. Yeah, it's really changing the fundamental beliefs about teaching and learning. Um, I think we often hear teachers will say, oh, it's another initiative coming along um, and thinking that we can have some professional development around it and we'll just add it to our bucket of other initiatives. But it's really changing the foundation of learning. Um, so it's not adding it's not adding strategies or practices onto what we currently do. It's actually shifting what we currently do, which takes a long time and a lot of mistakes, uh, a lot of iterations before we start to feel like it's effective. It feels to me like it's a mindset shift and that um, if you shift your mindset in this way, then what you realize is that there's always room for growth. Yeah, it's funny. We were just uh, we were just talking about mindset versus skill set yesterday, and there's you know a lot of research that says that in any large second order change, you need to shift mindsets first before you can actually start to see any any positives or start to change your skills. When we change mindsets uh, prior to actually being able to support the new mindset. Um, then we can run into some real problems. So we'll see teachers who will shift their mindsets about teaching so that the idea is the most that learning becomes more important than teaching, right? So what students learn becomes much more important than what we're actually teaching because it's irrelevant if they don't learn what we're teaching. But if we don't change the systems and structures of our classrooms and schools to support that new mindset, then very quickly that mindset runs up against a wall. So what I'm hearing from you is a chicken and egg kind of scenario where we need a mindset shift, but we need the skills that support that, but we need the skills in order to have the mindset <laughs> shift. Yes. It seems like they go hand in hand. Easy. I can tell that you're both systems thinkers by the way the book is organized. And particularly the thing I admire about the book is that... Um, you are proponents of backwards design, um, and you organize the book that way. Um, that as you uh, begin with articulating desired results and developing KUDs and learning scales and learning targets, you also create learning scales and KUDs and targets for your readers. And I found that to be so powerful that you're not just talking about what you can do in the classroom, that you're modeling what it looks like as you um, developed your book. And I, I wondered, um, how that emerged? What inspired you to organize the book in that way? Yeah, as far as I can remember, it started as the planning structure and an organizational structure. We had developed um, kind of categories and learning targets and scales for our work with the faculty and for the faculty at CVU. Uh, again, in thinking if we were going to try to help lead uh, adults to use learning targets and scales, then it made the most sense not only to uh, to have them experience that, but for us to to work on that and refine what we were really looking for. And so I think at first we really used it to kind of information. What would we say about these things? What would we say about this? What do we have to talk about with this? And then again, it quickly became apparent that 
wait a minute, this makes the most sense as far as the organization. So I'm not sure it stayed an organizational strategy for long. I think it pretty quickly became the, uh, the book uh, itself, but I think that is how it began. I just have such deep appreciation for that. Um, I detest PD that doesn't walk the talk. Like I, I really dislike sitting in professional development sessions that are um, disingenuous, I guess it feels like to me, like do as I say, not as I do. And the one that sticks out for me, the, the sort of counter example that always is in my brain is many years ago, sitting in a very large school cafeteria with 150 other teachers learning about differentiation instruction, differentiated <laughs> instruction in a way that was completely undifferentiated. Right. Like that pot, meat kettle, right? Like this is, um, it was like the height of hypocrisy for me. And so I just had this deep appreciation as I started engaging with the book in how, um, how you treat the reader as learner, right? And how you respect the, the reader as learner and use the structures that you know work for good learning with the reader. So kudos for that. Thank you. Um, one of the questions that I have as a reader, and I really um, have been using this work with districts I'm working with and um, with a district in particular that I'm working with, they're reading it, and it's been a great tool for us in helping them to develop the skills they need to make the shifts. Um, but one of the things that I still question, or I still have questions about, is the, um, the congruence of this with personalization. Like, how do we leverage KUDs and learning scales to um, sort of meet the other pillars of Act 77, flexible pathways and personalized learning. I'll start with, I, I think there's a, a big misunderstanding, misconception that um, standards-based learning is standardization. Um, and that couldn't be further from the truth. And Unfortunately, I think in some places those are a little closer together than others, so it can sometimes uh, get that bad name. Uh, we've taken an approach in our district of using skill-based learning targets, um, and our, our content is communicated through, we use KUDs, as we have in the book, um, but what that allows is a lot more freedom and flexibility. So we know what our end goal is, but how we choose to get to that end goal is where we can have a lot more flexibility. So we, not only um, as teachers, where I think it provides us a lot more autonomy, but also for students. So um, we, we have a lot more flexibility about what content we use, what content we go into depth with with different students. Um, there's a, a greater opportunity for students to design their own learning um, because we're, we can head towards the same outcome, but they can propose how they want to get there. Yeah, I think in, uh, in reality, when we look at the, a couple of the, seeing that in the classroom, uh, a couple of examples, again, for instance, uh, I think in our think tank class where the students have um, common learning targets, uh, four to five that we really use uh, throughout from the iterative process to uh, uh, summary of, of multiple, um, uh, multiple resources to use of media and, and some others. But the, uh, the idea is, though, in, in our class, we have a common theme about improving education uh, and learning and engagement within our school district. But the, they allow us to let students 
personalized based on their uh, based on kind of their wants, their desires, where they get kind of drawn into the class and into the into the reasoning. And so, what's great is you can have students working on. Uh, something around standardized testing or something around the architecture um, of school or the arrangement of classrooms or around mental health or around uh, wellness or around starting a student congress and all are focusing on the same learning targets and scales but with really um, really ideas and issues that they care about and that they're able to go with. I think the other thing we found is that with, as, as Emily spoke to, um, with the transferable well, it's a great help for differentiation. Uh, when we first started this years ago, when we st 10 years ago or so, we took a sabbatical that was focused on differentiation. And one of the first things we came to was what people were trying to differentiate tended to be um, content and tended to be, are you getting the answer right or wrong? And that was pretty difficult because that's where you got a lot of the, well, yes, people were slowing down because we were waiting for other people to get it right. And so uh, that's when we realized we needed these uh, transferable targets and scales. And then, you know, again, now we're coming back to the, I think, the need for more and more training with differentiation. But uh, yeah, I think, it, uh, I think they go hand in hand with the personalization. I think there's also a misunderstanding about personalization a lot of times, that personalization is just allowing students to do what they want, when they want, where they want, how they want. Um, and uh, I think that, this, that standards bring integrity to personalization. So they can ground the personalized work um, in uh, particular skills or skills that a student chooses. Um, but I think it reduces the risk of a sort of fluffy personalization that gives personalization such a bad name. Um, so just as I think s the standards-based um, practices can get a bad name when they become too rigid, uh, I think they, they offer a really nice balance to each other. Without personalization, standards-based learning could be pretty uh, regimented, um, could be pretty, well, standardized, which is not what it should be. So I think they need each other. You're making me think a lot about how we talk about um, uh, personalization, flexible pathways, and proficiency here at Tarrant, the Tarrant Institute, which is we think of them as not separate, but as like DNA strands wound together. And so I think um, in order to provide flexible pathways, you have to know your students well. In order for those flexible pathways to be meaningful, you have to know what the targets are. And so the proficiency-based um, system helps you develop flexible pathways that matter, and that's what I'm hearing from you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I like the, the visual of the DNA strands. Yeah. Um, and that leads me to your section on summative assessments. Um, and so I really, one of the things that I've noticed is I, um, both when I was in a school library and I was designing proficiency-based um, units of study, um, and then also, and collaborating with teachers in the design of proficiency-based units of study, but then also as I coach teachers now, is um, using this kind of a framework, the backwards design framework with the learning targets first, allows you to find where misalignment happens, right? Like where your instruction is actually not instructing on the things you're assessing on and is not related necessarily to your targets. And I, I think there's this big aha moment that happens for teachers the first time they do this, where they realize, oh, I'm not 
wait a minute, this doesn't always hang together well. And so I really love that about your framework. Um, and I wanted to know specifically as we work with middle school students about how do we do what we were just talking about, which is use these learning targets and these learning scales to make to open possibilities to young people for how they show what they know, what they can now do? It's a convoluted question. Yeah, it's funny. the the word that uh, the word that comes to mind, uh, obviously, when you talk about that, is the uh, is intentionality, right? And I, I still remember years ago. I think when we first started this, uh, we were at a Carol Tomlinson um, workshop, and at the time, I believe she was introducing or focusing on the KUD, and uh, I still remember like you said, the aha moment as she was talking about and kind of had a, a calendar under it and was showing how this was the time they were going to address this and then they were going to have time to get into these understandings. This understanding is where they were going to use this content to drive this understanding and um, and that, oh my gosh, like this is so much more intentional than this is going to be a unit on X or this is going to be a unit on, on Y. And so... Uh, I, I do a, I think that that intentionality is such a huge uh, part of this, and I think that's the thing that's probably hit us the most is that intentionality that yeah, does get driven from that that summative and from that endpoint. Um, and I also think that there are times where that summative is something that's predetermined, um, but then there's also that time where that summative is around a uh, a concept, it's around an idea, it's around a theme. We know the targets that we're going to be getting at to get to that or how they're going to be demonstrating um, some of the skills at the end, but that there can still be plenty of choice around what that summative looks like um, and around. Um, so I think that is one of the keys is, do we know what are, what are the skills we're going to try to get better at within this, uh, within this unit? But then um, how do we have flexibility at the end uh, and along the way, but at, at, if we're talking summatives, how do we have flexibility at the end to allow students to demonstrate those in uh, in different ways? And again, I think going back to what Emily was saying earlier, that standardization um, is where I think sometimes that's it's a misunderstanding. And, and again, it gets back to what we said in the very beginning. It require it is not just a grading mechanism. It is not that now I'm going to take the old test that I have always had and I am just going to change how I grade it, and I'm putting a one through four on top of it rather than an 87 on top of it. Um, we still see that happen, and I think that's where programs, um, schools get in trouble, and they try to just a, a conversion. Um, and so, but that's where a lot of our work is. How do we how do we make sure that our summatives are driving our uh, our work forward, and that the summatives are opening up the learning rather than kind of narrowing the learning. That was very well said. <laughs> it made me think about um, my own growth as an educator and when I shifted over time from, um, I'm getting vulnerable here, uh, when I shifted over time from um, sort of a, the checklist approach of your slideshow will have this many slides and it will have this, right? Like this checklist approach or rubric approach to scoring work to thinking about what the learning is, right? And what I love about learning targets, whether you use them in a learning scale or a single point rubric, is that there are so many different ways to express that you've learned that 
and that that's that opening I think I heard from you Stan um instead of that confining you must have three sources you must um list five descriptive words about your topic or whatever it is right the date of birth and the date of like silliness right as opposed to like what's the real um skill we want kids to be able what's the real thing we want them to be able to do one interesting change with summative assessments in our own teaching is I think in in the first 10 years of our teaching um, we our summatives looked almost exactly the same and that was the intent right so we had a clear idea of what this would look like whether it was a, a kind of conventional test where we actually literally wanted them to be the same because we wanted the same answers, which were the correct answers. Um, whether they were essays um, that would come in and we would you know, have a stack of 100 essays and we, those looked almost identical to each other. Um, they might have selected different evidence, but our requirements were so strict um, that they pretty much looked the same. Uh, now, I, I think for the last... I mean, since we shifted to a standards-based classroom, I, I can't think of a time when we've had any summative assessments that did look the same or that we wanted them to look the same. No, and what's funny about that is I can think back to when you were teaching in the ninth grade and you'd have 110 students and you were getting 100, and then going back to the vulnerable uh, pieces you're talking about, you're getting 110 of the same thing. and try grading 110 of the same thing, as we all know, right, what that does. And I remember a, a few years back, Emily saying to a group of people um, how she looked forward to getting summatives in now because it was exciting to see. And I remember a laughter from some of the people. Um, but that's absolutely true. There is now, there's something so exciting because you're getting all these different, uh, you know, whatever happens to be products that you've been working with and helping along the way. But there's a, there's a, a personality to them, there's a voice to them, there's an individuality to them, uh, and a uniqueness to them, which makes them exciting to see and to learn from rather than kind of feeling obligated to go through. So that uh, that has been a really fun shift from, uh, from our end. Uh, it's interesting to me because I'm a doc student now here at UVM. I'm in the Education Policy Leadership Studies program, and um, I have this professor, Kelly Clark Keefe, who's really interested in other ways of knowing and other ways of being, right? And so she's really pushing us to think about that you don't have to just choose the standard research model or the standard way. We could do our dissertation in the form of a poem if we wanted to, right? Like she's really encouraged. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Nobody wants to read my poems. But um, and so I'm taking a class with her this coming semester called Modes of Inquiry. That's really about thinking outside of that box and honoring other ways of knowing and being. And it seems to me when we open up summatives and give kids possibility and choice, we're honoring the many ways of knowing and being there are, mm -hmm. as opposed to. Um, forcing everybody to conform to one way of knowing and being. Mm -hmm. And I, there's just something really um, caring about that. Mm -hmm. Sorry to take you down my mental path. <laughs> um, so We'll read your poem. <laughs> An ode to formative assessment is next. Um, I really love the chapter on formative assessment, and um, it's all underlined and highlighted. It was my favorite section. You really helped me. Um, That's the chapter with the murder, right? <laughs> <laughs> right the car chase. The car chase. Yeah. Yeah. 
I um, I just found that to be a really rich chapter, both in thinking about um, ways of orchestrating timely feedback for students, and also just some of the strategies you share about how to do that. And I specifically carry around in my head as a tool this idea of short, specific, and sortable um, data that you can get from students to determine what needs retaught or, or, or where students are. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, about how you go about that in your class. Maybe give us an example. Yeah, I'll start with a, a little bit. Maybe I'll throw it to you for an, an example. But uh, I do. I think formative is probably, well, I probably shouldn't say the most important because I would probably end up uh, questioning myself. But the, the formative assessment is, in many ways, the most important, but also then the most misunderstood or underutilized. Um, I think one of the things you know we see is the it is um, old assignments are used, and then they say, well, it was formative. Well, actually, formative towards what? Um, one of the biggest things, going back to that intentionality that you were speaking of earlier, is that ability to shrink the field to a point where I can get that quick, usable information about where you are on that, uh, that, that scale, on that kind of learning journey. And so for us, you know, unfortunately, we haven't been able to create more time in the universe, um, but where I think we have shifted our time, the time we used to spend grading um, and going through and writing and all these things on endless amounts of homework, and some of the homework which may have been sitting in a pile for two weeks before I could get to it to kind of maybe not even get it back to you, but get it recorded in some book so I could write that you'd had a nine out of 10 on this. Um, that time has, has gone away, and instead, um, we've really worked hard to craft like you said, small, um, really intentional formative assessments that are done in class uh, all the time, done in class. We never let those go out. And with an intent to give us some quick, actionable, um, actionable feedback. I think one of the biggest changes for us was that idea of uh, it's not about if I've taught it, it's about if you've learned it. And that also that assessment um, assessment is really for the teacher. I think we used to think that assessment was for the student. Here's how you're doing. For maybe for the parents back home, here's how they're doing. When in reality, assessment is for the teacher. And if the teachers aren't using assessment to then drive their instruction and their practice, then they're, I would say, misusing um, or underutilizing the assessment. And so for us, formative assessments are um, really made to be one specific uh, in our class and in our terminology, one specific learning target scale. So again, we can get something that's quick and by sortable, meaning we can sit together and we can very quickly look and place them kind of in the same piles that would um, match up with the, with the scale. And sure, at time there might be outliers on either side, and that's something we could talk about um, later. But that we can now spend the time really focusing on how are we going to address the people that are at these uh, at, at these levels of this how what does because what this group needs is different than what this group needs and maybe different what this group needs and then what this person needs is different which obviously gets us back into the differentiation um, but it allows us the time to focus on our planning and the structure of our class versus the recording of information that wasn't really driving us anyway so I think that's kind of been the impact on us uh, I'm going to hope that gave you time to think of a good example so here you go 
Well, before you give an example, I just want to say what I what I'm hearing from you, because as you're you're sorting through that data, those quick exit tickets you've gotten, say, and saying, oh, these people are at this place in the learning scale, or these folks don't get it at all. These folks get it a little bit. These folks really have got it, and they're ready to move on, right? A lot of times when I'm working with teachers, they're like, what, I have to have like 22 lesson plans. And what I'm hearing from you is that these, that formative assessment allows you to group kids so that everybody's getting what they need based on where they are, but that um, it's still not one size fits all. It's also not 22 different sizes. That's that's a great distinction, and thank you for, for making that. Yeah, and again, not that it always works out perfectly like this, but that idea that, again, where we've all in the past written more or less the same comments on 12 different um, papers or on 12 different uh, assignments um, and then gone and record that whereas as we had that pile we know that some direct instruction perhaps the next day and it may be five minutes that gets that group on and whatever that that next task is or that work with it and so uh, so yeah there is often that thought that it has to be 22 different ones there's also often that thought that I have to um, make it all up the night before and what we've tried to get at is we know the group you know that there will be kids in these groups now you may not know ahead of time what kids are going to fall in each groups but you can still have plans about how will i differentiate for the evidence target how will i differentiate for my claim target how am i going to differentiate for my relationships target again i might not know the numbers and who's there but i doesn't mean that it has to be i can't plan some of it prior to having those piles. And I think that's an important uh, distinction as well. Yeah, and the, the scales are really essential to that. So having really well-written, kind of tested scales that have you know, fully articulated levels, that really helps us with the sorting um, because it's not about comparing work to other work. Uh, so when we, go to, when we, we get that pile of 50 assi formative assessments in, it's not saying, well, this student's work is better than this student's work, and then putting them in a line of 50 of them compared to each other. We have four very distinct articulated uh, skills or levels of a skill. So we're sorting the work into those four levels. Um, and again, as Stan said, there may be outliers as well that don't fall on the scale for some reason. But the better our scales, the faster that process is. We often use that process to revise our scales as well because we'll, we'll make our piles and then look at what does all the work in this pile have in common? So what can these students do? Which then helps us write the language of the scale at that level. Um, but I, I think with, without the clearly articulated scales at those levels, um, not only is the sorting harder, but the planning for the differentiation is harder. Because then we think, well, now what do we do? I know these, these students aren't at the target, but I'm not quite sure what to do for them. Whereas when we have the uh, language of the, the increasing levels of complexity of the skill, then we know that we need to design practice or instruction um, in order to get students to be able to do what's in each of those boxes. So I'm hearing, I'm hearing a couple of themes emerge in my brain, and one is iteration again, that you create scales, and then you look at student work, and you revise your scales, Absolutely. as well as reteaching to students if they need it, right? And so that this is an ongoing process of always fine-tuning your scales. Our courses have a limited number of learning targets, which allows us to be able to 
dive in and revise and spend time with each target and each scale. Some schools are working with hundreds of learning targets and immediately think, you mean I have to have a scale for every one of these learning targets and then I have to revise it and then I'm sorting work based on it and then differentiating based on it? So it becomes quickly overwhelming. Um, yeah, I think if I had to uh, give people advice who were at a school if you were if you were getting into this um, and starting some work with the faculty around this uh, again it's this it can't be seen that these scales are for assessment and assessment uh, only and for putting something at the end and getting teachers to actually live and feel the scales and getting them to try to do the work at these uh, at these levels we just uh, shared a article we'd seen on Twitter about uh, was it called dog fooding uh, tech term right about what do you actually do do you do what you're saying are you doing your assignments are you doing your homework are you actually so you can figure out what are some of the stuck points why can my how can my directions be better um, what parts are going to be confusing for people and so I think that for us yeah that was where it takes a lot. I can think of a graphic representation um, learning target and scale that we had and we struggled and struggled with the class. We would we would get things back and we're like this isn't what we're looking for and we ended up taking it off of an assessment because we just we realized we hadn't gotten kids even close to where they needed to be and that was on us. That certainly wasn't on them and so we took it off that assessment and we worked with them and by the start of the uh, next year we had really figured it out and with because we knew the scale because we understood kind of what it meant and what we meant by it and how to instruct it within <laughs> two days they had gotten far beyond what our group had gotten over the course of about two months the year before and that had nothing to do with the students that was purely that we didn't really understand what we were asking for which again sounds silly or strange but uh, going back to it, I think when, again, to that vulnerable piece, when you look back um, and try to talk to people, we don't really always know what we're asking for or what we're looking for. We may have an idea or a topic or an assignment, but what are you really, what, what are you trying to get better at? What's the skill I'm trying to get? Or what do you want people to, to understand from this? Um, I think that's often a little bit either misunderstood or people haven't thought about it as much as, uh, as they could or so should. <laughs> So I'm hearing from you um, what's ringing for me is clarity mm -hmm. and intentionality again, right? And um, I love that idea of dog fooding. I'm a school reform initiative facilitator, and there's a great protocol where you ask a group of people to complete at least part of an assessment mm -hmm. before then having a conversation about what are students actually working on here? What is it that we're... And it's, I think it's a great tool for um, standards-based or proficiency-based um, uh, or competency-based education systems to really get at um, that. Because I can't tell you the number of times my kid, who's really good at thinking about current events or social studies, would work really hard on um, a paper, an essay, always an essay, um, and come back with a B or a C because of the grammar usage and mechanics, right? Like he's being scored on one thing when he's supposed to be um, thinking about themes or um, uh, cause and effect or some other mm -hmm. thing, right? And then his grade is always about whether or not he used commas appropriately. Uh, yeah, and I think that goes back to that shrinking the field that idea with a lot of those those formatives. And so, you know, cause and effect is important. Being able to see relationships is important. There's grammatical stuff that's certainly important, but um, how do you parse those out so that you're sure you're focusing, not only you're focusing on the right one, but the student knows what we're, we're focusing on and what we're trying to, uh, to work with. 
Yeah, I was working with a teacher uh, yesterday, a middle school teacher, and a science teacher, and she was working on uh, evidence and reasoning, so a learning target. And she was showing me examples of student work and was getting frustrated that students were getting stuck before the reasoning. So they were, they were nailing the evidence, um, but were really getting stuck on sophisticated reasoning. And so she was explaining what she was doing, and she said, well, I, you know, I, I ask them to come up with a claim, so we, watch a, we, we view a phenomenon. Um, we, they come up with a claim, and then they do their evidence and reasoning around that claim. So we started looking at some of the claims, and some of the claims they were coming up with were not sophisticated enough to allow for or require reasoning to require a sophisticated level of reasoning, right? So they were these simple claims that really led to a student being able to prove it with one or two pieces of evidence. And they were so obvious as claims that there was no reason for the student to have to reason. So she quickly came to the, like, wait a minute, what if I were to provide them with the claim that was more complex, then what would happen to their ability to reason? So she was able to, it seems, as Stan said, shrink the field and think about what is it that's getting in the way of their ability to do the skill I'm actually trying to instruct and assess. So the coming up of the claim isn't one of the skills that she was trying to instruct and assess, and yet it was the thing that was getting in the way of their ability to think more critically. So I want to poke at this a little bit because I have, um, I have some curiosity about something. So what I'm hearing from you actually is that that the teacher's job, the educator's job, is really to engage in what does what's what's the pattern of learning that happens, and to be to experiment with that a little bit, right? Like what I heard you just say is about a teacher experimenting with what would happen if, and they're not doing this. So what if I? And I love that. And for me as an educator, that's way more interesting being like that level of engaged than doing the same thing, teaching the same thing in the same way all the time. But I'm also thinking about this book. You may have read The End of Average. And um, by uh, Todd Rose, I think. Um, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't read it. So um, we did a podcast on it this fall. And um, this book has stayed with me a lot. Because one of the things he points out is that um, there, isn't one, uh, there isn't one path that developmentally even like we in and he's talking a lot about how averages have impacted our lives and in, in, in this country and in the, in the world and how that came to be and that like we have this notion uh, having had an infant <laughs> I remember this that that kids should gain a certain amount of weight that they crawl before they walk right but that when we look worldwide actually there are tons of different ways to get to walking that there's not one universal path through development. And so this is where I have a little bit of a struggle. There's a push-pull for me with learning scales because I see the benefit of really thinking through what are the steps somebody has to take, or not even steps, but like what, what do you have to be able to do before you can do the next thing? But what if there are multiple paths? How do learning scales account for the multiple paths there might be through the learning? And so that's like just a really genuine struggle that I have when I'm thinking about this and my work with teachers and students. I think that's a great question. One of the first things that comes to mind is that the way we define scales, and again, they're defined in many different ways, and you'll see examples all over the place that they're written in many different ways, but um, that the scale is not a procedure. 
right? So it's not steps to learning that you have to follow in order to get there. Um, I think the way we look at it is it's, it's the most uh, kind of common experience of the increasing complexity of the skill we're looking for. Um, we often have students who will um, kind of blow us away with the approach that they take to, to meeting um, or to reaching or often going beyond these skills. Um, it's another reason that we believe strongly in the transferable skill scales right? and the transfer, excuse me, transferable scale skill <laughs> learning targets um, because they allow students a lot more freedom um, about how to express, how to get there, um, where to go beyond the target. Um, so that's the first thing that made me think of is the difference between procedural and kind of increasing complexity. That's helpful, thank you. Yeah, and I can think of, um, for instance, a, a claim target and scale that we've used where it's about the increasing complexity of a, of a claim, which the, the more complex claims show relationships and, um, and have other factors involved. But again, it, it, to your point, I can think of a class a few years ago and three, three distinct students right now and as, as, you, as you said, to get to know those students as part of that learning, that learning journey, I can think of the one student who needed a table uh, full of just blank white paper so that she could write all over the place and that she could come up with ideas and mind map and web in order to come up with that, that idea and that claim. I can think of the student who was two tables over and who needed boxes and short pieces and maybe some guiding questions to get to that. If you gave that student open big blank white paper, they would push it back at you or throw it at you or who knows what. And then I can think of the student who writing it was not, but if they would sit and you would, I don't even think they would say talk to them, but if you would just sit there as a ear period piece and let them talk to you, they would eventually talk their way to it. So I do think you're right. There's I think for us, there's a we have an idea, and again, it probably still an imperfect one of what does that complexity look like. But then figuring out what is it that's going to help each person get to that um, is again, like you said, unique and and different, and there is absolutely no um, average way, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for thinking about that. That language of complexity and that you've shifted my thinking on that. I really appreciate that. Um, I also really love in this section the big blue head, which I know is a graphic that comes from CVU. Is that right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, if it's okay with you, I'd love to put a picture of it in the transcript so folks can look at it. But I wondered if you could just give us an overview of the big blue head. I will right up front say the reason it was titled the big blue head was because when we had it printed off, what they had was bulk blue 11 by 16 paper. And so <laughs> that was the story. There's no uh, grand story behind it other than the first time it got printed off, it was on blue paper and someone said, it's a big blue head. And so it stuck. But um, that was years ago, we brought in some people from uh, our core program. I believe it was maybe two different teachers from each core from various subjects and really just trying to get at what does learning look like? Um, at the end of my class, what are things that I hope kids have gotten better at? What do I hope things that they've learned? And after some activities um, with kind of, they almost created tiles because they're writing them all down, we sorted some of those and started to look at it. And eventually after some work, it really started to break out into three kind of broader areas. There's input. Um, how do we get what is the information into somebody? Um, maybe it's reading, maybe it's listening, whatever it happens to be. How are we getting information into somebody? Then. There's obviously the output. So how do they eventually get 
their information out to others, but then all that stuff that happens um, in, in between, the, the thinking. And as Emily again uh, said earlier, we don't want it to be one size on this equals this size and that you're just parroting back one to the other. Um, how your output should be in some ways larger than your, than your input or, or maybe smaller because you've synthesized and made meaning, but it needs to be different. It needs to be yours. But how do we get at the thinking? How do you get at that middle part? And so we would have the, uh, the big blue head on the wall and really tried to be aware of when we were planning a lesson, is this part right now about input? Is this about output? Is this about the thinking? And tried to be really intentional with the students in talking about that as well, just to get them to, to think kind of metacognitively, like, what am I doing now? Um, and which part of it is this? And also, I mean, maybe going back to your reflection piece to, to help start to figure out, like, are there parts of this that I struggle with? Are there parts of this where I, we can really start to narrow down um, some of this? And so that's where it came from. And it, again, it's 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 kind of morphed over time, and I mean, eventually it was really used at CVU to um, create some of our graduation standards. At what are those things we're looking to make uh, everybody kind of be able to do and get better at? Um, but it really, I think, had a big impact on our instruction and again on our differentiation, because um, differentiating to help somebody. In, get the input? Am I differentiating the reading so that everybody can get access to this content information? Am I differentiating something on the output side? Um, and maybe that's by choice or, or who knows what it's by. But then also, um, how am I helping scaffold any of that stuff uh, in the thinking piece? And so I think that's been um, really uh, as funny as the, as the podcast goes on and finding more and more of these terms keep coming back, right? That intentionality piece of what part of this is that and how do I best help um, a student, uh, a student with that. I, um, I just want to. I love this conversation. It's reminding my husband. My husband is also an educator. He's a curriculum director in Southern Vermont, and um, and he's been working really hard on proficiency-based um, learning with his teachers. And he's been thinking a lot about alignment and intentionality. And um, he talks a little bit about what he calls um, black box teaching or black black box learning, which is like, like, oh, I, I put this in and then this comes out and this like, or like, it's like, what do you wave a magic wand? Like, what is the step in between? And then thinking about a conversation we recently had in the Two Rivers Supervisory Union about self-direction and, um, and that we at Taryn have been having about what, what is self-direction specifically? And part of what self-direction is, is being able as a student, as a learner, to say, this is the learning strategy I need, right? And it's what happens in the big blue head or the black box, right? And how are we giving, this language comes out of a document called the Essential Skills and Dispositions, which the Two Rivers Supervisor Union uses instead of transferable skills. And one of their definitions of self-direction is tinkering with learning strategies. And so I've been thinking, when do we give kids opportunities to tinker with learning strategies? And for me, that's what's happening in the big blue head. And that's, what that's what's happening with tiles when you say it makes the thinking visible. And I'm just thinking about the magic of that and how complicated it is to make all of that that's happening in the head apparent to us, visible. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think right back to uh, to again to a, a student. It's fun doing this because all of a sudden all these old stories and uh, and students come back uh, popping up. But uh, Emily will know where I'm going with this. But that so often um, thinking was purely judged by your output, and as she said, often it was an essay, 
right? Or maybe even going back to what, what you were saying earlier about your, uh, your own child. But this, uh, I can think of this one student where especially the writing output was a struggle. Uh, no question she had struggles with writing and was working to improve those, but that was a struggle. But so often then I think her thinking or level of thinking was undersold or not appreciated. And it wasn't until we were able to start to try to figure out how do you see the, the thinking and how do you honor that and how do you get into that part. Uh, it was um, some work we were doing around uh, morality and ethics and categorical thinking and consequential and utilitarian thought and all these different and she had some of the most complex ideas and understandings and connections there's no way she could have written those um, but uh, I think at the time because we were trying to figure out how do we get in there all of a sudden this light bulb I think went on for us with oh my gosh these you know this one student in particular has so many brilliant thoughts that are being you know, I guess not being honored because traditionally we haven't had a, a vehicle for those to uh, to come out. And so I think that that one student has driven so much of our work around uh, around that. I mean, even our own current course is called Think Tank and is really just trying to spend most of the time dealing with how do I think and what does it mean to think and how do I develop ideas and spend as much time as we can in that in that center part. Um, but I think a lot of it came back to that 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 one student and realizing this, oh my gosh, what have we been missing? Again, <laughs> going back to the vulnerable part, uh, what have we been missing all these years with students because we've kind of been jumping over that, that middle section? I think also the, we've used the big blue head with students a lot and when, when they have the language to understand what's happening in each of those three categories, so the, the, the input um, thinking and the output, uh, I think that really opens up their thinking as well. Thinking can be this sort of magical thing that students think they're either good at or bad at. But when, when we were able to break it down with students and show when we're talking about thinking, here's a whole bunch of thinking skills. And w students started to be able to identify what they were doing. I'm evaluating or I'm uh, synthesizing right now. Um, I'm... Uh, recognizing relationships or showing the relationships between things. Um, I think it opened up a lot more confidence for them with their thinking and allowed us to push things further because we had the language to push it further. So it wasn't just we need you to think more, <laughs> um, but we were able to actually say, let's take a look at your ability to synthesize right now or something more specific. I think that's really powerful. I, I think, and so when I think about when I'm working on learning targets or learning scales, I use the thesaurus a lot because I'm trying to really get at what do I mean. When I, when I ask somebody to synthesize, what am I actually asking them to do? And um, the other thing I'm thinking about is an article I read for a class last semester about embodied learning, and I want to challenge you. I think your next graphic should be the big green body. <laughs> I think that we don't just think with our brains, right? right? Like the we know now that there's this brain belly connection and brain heart connection, and so I'm just just spitballing. I think that's a great idea. We have a colleague who said it's it's missing its heart. That it's not just the head. The heart needs to be there. And I think about young children, mm -hmm. and um, well, and I think as adults too that we maybe have lost the ability to do this, but we really do think with our whole bodies. I do my best writing um, when I'm walking. Unfortunately, I have not yet um, mastered the art. That, yeah. I haven't yet mastered the art of the voice memo, which is my next, my New Year's resolution is to start like recording myself when I'm walking because I write 
amazing letters while I'm hiking in the woods, but I never get them down. So I usually ask this question at the very beginning, um, but I'm going to ask it right now since we jumped right in. We had so much to talk about. What are you reading for fun? Oh, <laughs> so many things. <laughs> uh, right now, I am reading my, my fiction book for fun right now is a young adult novel. Uh, and that is, uh, let me see if I can get, it's Erica Sanchez, I think is the author. I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, which I'm loving. So uh, I think that um, I'm a huge uh, Lee Child, Jack Reacher fan as well. So I just finished the new Jack Reacher novel, which um, I always like. Have you read The Poet X? No. Who? You have to. The Poet X? Yeah, you have to follow up, not your perfect. Okay. What, is that what it's called? Not your perfect I'm Mex not your perfect Mexican daughter. Yes. You have to follow that up with the Poet X. Okay. Um, you will love it. I wish I could say I had a uh, triple F read. Was that fiction for fun? Um, but I think the, uh, the, the current book, it was just given to me uh, over the holidays, and so I've just kind of gotten into it. Let's see if I can get this right. I think it's called The Rise, uh, Sarah Lewis, I believe. And um, from, from how it's about um, the ideas of kind of mastery and failure and the, uh, the archer's paradox and trying to, uh, it starts with a story of the uh, Columbia women's uh, archery team and then this idea of um, how an archery, and again, I'll, I'll butcher this, but you know, you are trying to control some things that are out of your control, be it the weather, and so this idea of the process and trying to constantly, uh, I guess maybe it goes back to the gap. So uh, just kind of started into that, so that would be the thing that's uh, next to the bed. Nonfiction can be fun too. Yeah, can, right, right, thank you, thank okay. you. I just want to thank you both so much for this conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for days more about this book, about your work, about teaching and learning. Thank you both so much for coming to UVM and, and um, spending time talking about your work with me. No, thanks. It was great. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Emily Rinkema and Stan Williams for appearing on the show and talking with me about the Standards-Based Classroom. If you're looking for a copy of the Standards-Based Classroom, check your local library. Deep appreciation to Audrey Holman, our fabulous audio engineer, and so much more. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.terraninstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at VTEDReads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.